0: welcome to the dairy farmers digest a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming each episode we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business i'm your host keith Schweitzer, and i hope you enjoy this episode Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Dairy Farmers' Digest. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm really excited today to have uh, Dr. Jeffrey Dahl on. Uh, Jeffrey is the director of the Feed the Future Lab Innovation for Livestock Systems uh, with the University of Florida, and then it says you're uh, Harriet B. Weeks professor, uh, president of the American Dairy Association as well, and I guess you're a past president of the ADSA?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was a few years ago. I was uh president of the American Dairy Science Association, correct.
0: Well, it's, uh I'm really excited to have you on today. Like I mentioned there just before we uh got recording, I've mentioned your name a lot uh, on this podcast when talking about uh heat stress and we're kind of we're in the throes of it right now. I know the last couple of weeks here in Ontario have mm-hmm. been a little bit uh have been a little bit cooler and damper, but uh we've had some pretty pretty severe bouts. And, uh, I guess one thing I kind of want to preface too, is I went to California in 2019 thinking that, Oh, we're going to learn a lot about heat stress. And then I think in 2020, I went to Florida and I picked up way more stuff in Florida just because I think our climate here in Southwestern Ontario was a lot more similar to what yours would be in Florida with the heat and humidity, like not to the extreme, but I think, uh, I think there was some more common practices and things that we could pick up there. So
1: i'm excited to have you on today i grew up in in massachusetts and so um i think that summers in that area uh massachusetts all the way across to michigan wisconsin are going to be similar to what we have here, sometimes hotter. I mean, we don't get as hot as some of those areas can get from a high temperature standpoint. Um, The humidity may not be quite as bad, uh, but that's what we see is hot, humid weather. And so, as you said, places like California, some that are more a little little more arid, you get some night cooling. uh, I think that they can um, take some different approaches to dealing with heat stress.
0: It's hot. No matter where you go this time of year, right across the or Canada and uh, the continental U.S., right? So, right, uh, right. why don't we start this off and maybe just get uh talk to the audience a little bit about your history and how you uh, got to the University of Florida?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I, as I said, grew up in Massachusetts, uh, did my undergrad degree at the university there, and then um, went to Virginia Tech, degree in dairy science, more related to nutrition, and then did my PhD at Michigan State in lactation physiology, um, postdoc for a while more in the reproductive neuroendocrine area, and then uh, faculty positions at Maryland, uh, at Illinois, and then finally here uh, at Illinois at Florida about uh, seventeen years ago. And most of my work has been related to either lighting or, or heat stress. Uh, and they have kind of some similarities in terms of the physiologic impacts of those. And so that's how I've kind of transitioned off of uh, lighting photoperiod work into to heat stress.
0: So I imagine as somebody who wanted to study heat stress, you just got sick of the cold winters, you couldn't do any research. <laughs>
1: well, that was certainly one of the advantages of coming to Florida.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I've been down to the campus there at uh, at Gainesville, and it's uh, it's a really nice place. And you guys have a really nice facility there for uh, doing research as well at the at the research farm. So,
1: yeah, yeah, we like it. We've got large enough herd that we can really do some some interesting work um, relative to some other places that may not have the number of cows that we have to to put on studies.
0: So I guess the hot topic today, sorry for my bad pun, but uh, is heat stress. So I think what we'll do is because I know heat stress affects the entire life cycle of the dairy animal and beef and sheep and and, and most ruminants and even monograstic livestock. But since we're a dairy focused podcast, uh, maybe I think we'll start with the lactation cycle and kind of work our way back backwards down to the calves, because I know there's been a lot of uh, research on the impact of heat stressed calves in utero and colostrum absorption and whatnot. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe just walk us through a little bit about what happens uh, to a heat stress cow when she's in her lactation cycle.
1: Yeah. Well, let's focus on lactation first. Um, you know, animals that are... <clears throat> producing that much milk, eating that much feed, produce a lot of heat. And so they've got a lot of of metabolic heat that they're trying to get rid of. And so when we layer on top of that ambient heat uh, from the environment, it makes it more difficult for them to to get rid of that heat. And so when they're heat stressed, they end up consuming less feed because they're trying to adapt and adjust to those conditions. Um, That means they're going to make less milk because of the lower feed intake, but they also then have to make metabolic accommodation to get rid of that excess heat, and that takes energy. And so to get rid of that heat, they take energy that they could use for milk production and put it towards trying to maintain their, their thermal uh, regulation. So those animals will reduce the amount of feed intake. They will reduce the amount of milk that they produce beyond what we might've expected with the drop in feed intake. and they will recover differently depending on the stage of lactation that they're at. And we've actually found uh, recently working with a former student of mine, Sha Tao at the University of Georgia, that early lactation cows and cows kind of at the end of the lactation seem to be a little more resilient than those mid-lactation cows. And what I mean by that is the animals in mid-lactation, when they're heat stressed acutely, uh, they tend not to recover as quickly as those other early or late lactation cows. So there may be some some uh, perceptions that, oh, well, early lactation cows are the ones that would be most negatively influenced by heat stress. That may not quite be the case if we're looking at the sort of extended effects of, of heat stress on those animals.
0: I understand with the, with the fresh cows, fresher cows, just because there's a lot of generally their feed intakes higher metabolically. I think they're working a lot harder and just, there's a lot more going on like immune system wise too. Like I know a lot of their immune systems will be activated at that time. So there's a little bit of a, I guess, a glucose uh, partitioning towards that, but why, why the mid lactation? Like you'd think once they get their milk curve kind of set that they would kind of stick close to it. And, and, you know, from the field, you talk to farmers about heat stress cows, and a lot of it, the the blame gets laid on the late lactation cows not recovering, and now you're kind of busting the myth and saying, no, it's more the the mid lactation animals that have the greater effect.
1: So obviously, I think I mentioned training as a lactation physiologist, everything's going to come back to the mammary gland for me, just like you know nutritionists are always going to come back to ruminal activity and and that type of thing. But uh, what? when you said that they kind of established their lactation curve, that's that's exactly right. But to get to that peak of lactation, we have to have two things, maximal number or capacity of mammary cells. And then we have to have those working as hard as they're going to work.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then as we move beyond the peak, really that decline in the lactation curve, a lot of it is turnover of cells and loss of cells from the mammary gland. And so my interpretation of these mid-lactation effects are that those animals, because they're not still sort of on the upward trajectory, can't recovery as, recover as well as the animals in early lactation. And the late lactation animals, you just don't, don't probably don't see it as much. They've mm-hmm. already declined. And so I think that there is a sort of a plasticity that occurs early in lactation that allows them to be more resilient. And then later in lactation, we just don't observe it because the animals are at a lower level of, of output.
0: Oh, that's a... That's an interesting observation. I I, uh, I love doing the podcast sometimes because I have a lot of myths busted uh, when you're thinking about these things. So um, what are some of the other biological impacts that are affected by heat stress? Like I know repros often an issue. I know when I was down in the the Southeast U S like everybody talked about having real great break rates except for July. Oh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know what what that sort of means is um, somewhere the, the the process is breaking down, and what it appears to be, at least from my understanding, um, talking to colleagues that work in the area, is you get a lot more early loss of those embryos with heat stress. And so we've worked on that quite a bit. There's been a lot of work done and just on the management side as well, making sure that cows are kept cool and that. Um, So many of our larger farms that are using um, time breeding and that type of thing really don't experience that same loss of, of reproductive performance in the summer that that they used to. Matter of fact, some of our, our better farms really don't have any seasonality to that at all. They were at such a high level of performance that they they aren't seeing that anymore. But much of it would be due to the elevated temperature and the effects, and not all of them have been worked out, on uh, early early loss of those embryos and that heat effect, not only on the cow, but on the embryo itself.
0: Yeah. So is it that they're not conceiving or it sounds like more that they're losing that embryo before, either before a checker or right after
1: they conceive. And then it's in that early development stage. And you can see that you can regenerate that in the, in the lab, right. Where we have um, IVF experiments and other ones where you'd go in and, and heat those, some of those embryos up and you can see the effects specifically on, of the heat rather than an effect of the cow or anything else.
0: Yeah. So then that, that just comes back to maybe some of these higher producing herds are also have better heat abatement in the barns and better cooling and better better management just in, in general. And maybe you don't see that seasonality effect anymore.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I would say though that you know we're going to talk about dry cows. There's certainly an impact there that we're interested in pursuing more as, as well because Um, clearly those animals that are going to be heat stressed, even when they're dry. So when they're carrying that calf, that's about to be born, we still have to remember that, you know, all of the, the follicles that are going to be ovulated then particularly early in lactation are already sort of in the developmental trajectory. Mm -hmm. and So there are effects on those follicles as well, that may influence their reproductive performance in the next lactation. And uh, in fact, we've got some evidence that that's the case. We had just looking at seasonality. Um, we did a study on a large commercial dairy where we took records from animals that were heat stressed, in, uh, that were dry during the hotter months versus the same genetic makeup, same herd. Mm-hmm. Everything else is the same management wise that were dry during the cooler months. And we saw negative impacts just of that time that they were dry being in the heat stress season on their reproductive performance.
0: So there's quite a bit of lag in that then. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's why we see more of those issues arise kind of in the fall, because it just takes some time to manifest it. Right. Exactly. Interesting. Um, Back to like the energy thing that we were talking about earlier, like a cow has to like, they're going to eat less, but do they not also have a higher maintenance requirement in the summer as well.
1: Well, I suppose it depends on whether they're heat stressed or not. I don't know that their maintenance requirement per se changes, but the the energy that's going to be going towards maintaining body temperature at a at a normal level would uh, would be more, uh, just because they've got it, it's it's not. It's not like in the winter when they're 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 producing so much heat that their body temperature their thermoneutral zone is is maintained because they're within that. We're moving them outside of their thermal neutral zone with heat as well as you can do with cold. It's just that it has to be extremely cold and you know you'd have to starve them probably to, to really yeah. see some of those effects. But on the heat side, they would have to use more energy to, to get rid of that excess heat
0: and that's just like an increase in respiratory rates and just like metabolically like that cow's just under stress so she kind of yeah. gets it to the next level
1: right i mean it's moving one way or another right and it's just prioritization and that prioritization of maintaining body temperature is more than providing nutrients to mammary production
0: yeah because is there like a almost a checklist like a cow goes through it's like okay if I'm gonna be in a lactation cycle my first bit of energy goes to stay alive then my next energy goes to production then my next energy goes to reproduction like inherently they've already programmed themselves to know where they have to partition energy so it's just I guess we just have to help them in the summer make sure that they can kind of follow that list as well
1: yeah and i'd say it's not necessarily uh you know that may be a little bit too simplistic but i I think you're on the right track of they've got a prioritization of of things that they're going to be addressing because we know that you know even a heat stress cow can become pregnant and she can still Mm -hmm. produce milk and a two-year-old can still grow but the levels of all of those in terms of her peak performance is probably going to be reduced
0: and then on the dry cow side, like I know we touched on that a little bit too, like I know here in Ontario or I guess kind of the upper Midwest, I could kind of classify us as well. We feed a lot of high fiber kind of low energy density diets in the summer. And I know there's, there's a lot more heat generated from a cow trying to digest that. Like how much of an effect does that have on, you know, a dry cow if, uh, through the summer months?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. We haven't looked at that specifically in terms of different diets and and how that might influence them. Dry matter intake level is significantly reduced in dry cows as well, right? So we're looking at about half of the the sort of normal intake in that 11 to 12 kilos a day dry matter um, on on many of our studies. Um, So I don't know that it would have as much of an effect as on um in, in a lactating uh, situation uh but certainly there is going to be an element of heat generated from whatever diet we're feeding them and if we have a very uh what i'll call a, you know high, high fiber diet that may mm-hmm. not they may make the problem worse but it's not like we can do a, a high energy diet and get away with not having the problem
0: what's going to cause us more of a problem having fat yeah. cows that calve out in the heat or having right. cows that maybe eat a little bit less during the heat. And,
1: you know, the other thing to remember is that all of the responses that we see in dry cows, you can't really explain them too much by, and part of them might be uh, because of the reduction in intake, but this is not a, a dry matter intake sort of driven process. Uh, there has been one study that they did with pair feeding, and it maybe explains thirty percent of the the differences. Um, we see physiologically that there are differences in those animals that affect mammary development, and then that mammary development plus all of the other factors that go along with it are going to be reducing the capacity for yield in that next lactation.
0: Yeah. So. With that, is it like, because like they're using the dry cow period as a regenerative time for their mammary gland, like, so it sounds like there's a lot of impact that heat stress can kind of, I guess, be an antagonist on that process.
1: Yeah. And we uh, sort of our working model, big picture is that there are impacts early in the dry period and there are impacts later on in the dry period because it's it, it it seems like they're doing nothing, right? And it's just a static sort of, oh, well, she uh, sort of uh, had a, a reduction, obviously, in the amount of milk she was putting out and suddenly that milk is kind of resorbed and then she's dry and then the week before uh, she calves in, she starts bagging up and boom, it's just kind of in between there's nothing going on. Well, that early dry period we think is really setting the stage for what happens later on and in particular there's a lot going on that is linked to immune function because you know immune function is important obviously for getting rid of pathogens and responding to to pathogen insults that type of thing but you know your immune system also does a lot in just terms of, of tissue turnover and so As the animals go dry and the signals are that we're going to have an opportunity for some changes uh, from a mammary remodeling perspective, that immune system has to be at peak performance at that time too. And so if it's not because she's heat stressed and we know that has negative impacts on immune function, then those animals may not be set up as well to Mm -hmm. then go into the proliferative phase and take advantage of the the physiology at that time so you know early on we want to kind of get rid of and turn over some of those cells in the mammary gland and set the stage for increased proliferation later on and that heat stress it looks like negatively impacts the first phase and the second phase and we can see um we did a study a few years ago with switching animals so they were Heat stressed for the first half of the dry period and then cooled, or cooled and then heat stressed the last half of the dry period, and in both cases they weren't any different from animals that have been heat stressed the whole time. So hmm. keeping them cool the the whole dry period is important to really see the the positive effects of that cooling uh, when they're when they're dry. And we think that's because there are these two phases that are both important to maximize capacity for that next lactation.
0: I know one of the most um, kind of thing, I guess one of the most important things that I've noticed or learned over my career so far is that, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, the far off dry cow was a complete afterthought. Nobody ever thought about, you know, heat abatement or feeding that group pro- properly. You know, it was just put them in a pasture, put them back out, back in that old bank barn, and we'll deal with them when they come up to the close up pen. And, you know, everybody kind of seemed to focus on, On the last three weeks before calving but like with people like you like we're just learning so much more about the entire dry period and how critical it is on 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 that animal's future production
1: yeah i uh i sometimes uh sort of remark that i don't really like the term transition period because it allows us to ignore the first half of the dry period And it's a really critical phase. And I think we're learning more and more that what happens in the dry period really influences how that animal performs, as you said, for that entire next lactation. And we can can screw up more in the dry period in terms of that animal's performance than we can ever fix in lactation. And so we have to, again, readjust our thinking a little bit so that we... uh, really focus on making sure that those cows for the entire dry period are managed properly and then you know what we do in lactation we can do even more i mean if we've got better managed animals in the dry period and we have good management in lactation we should have high levels of performance throughout
0: well i mean i see it every day with dairies is that the dairies that do a really good job managing their dry cows and their calvings and any maybe metabolic diseases after calving, which typically I think there's less. If you manage that dry cow properly, um, there seems to be less, sorry, I won't use the word transition, but there seems to be less metabolic (laughs) disorders at calving. (laughs) And it just seems like those herds just kind of everything else falls in line. You know, there's good milk production, there's good component production, there's good reproduction. Like it just, it just seems like, I wouldn't say easy, but easier than, you know, if you're battling some kind of issue through the dry period, whether you didn't treat them right at the beginning or there's, you know, space limitations, heat abatement, like you, you name the, you name the stressor that we put on that cow.
1: Yep. Yep. And all we have to do is remember that, uh, you know, you look at the times that cows get sick, right? Yep. Disease incidents. Peaks, when? Peaks right around dry off and around cabin, <laughs> And so yeah. we have had that knowledge for a long time, and yet we've kind of ignored it from the management perspective. Uh, we just say, oh, well, that, that comes with the territory. It doesn't. It's partially influenced by how we manage those animals. And as you said, that multiple stressors that those animals are going under, we don't need to add to it with, probably the most significant stress that they experience, which is heat stress.
0: Yeah. Um, what about the the calf in utero? Because this is where I'm completely amazed by the work that you do, is looking at what happens to that calf during, you know, I would say like the last trimester yeah. or or is it the whole dry period, like since conception, like is it, is there effects from epigenetics there or is it mostly just in kind of the end?
1: Yeah, there, there probably are some effects, but the the predominant effects are towards the end, which, you know, I have to admit, when we first started looking into this, I would have thought, you know, those calves are pretty bulletproof at that point. They should be, you know, pretty well developed. I mean, you've had cows calve at eight months or less than the calf, calf lives, so, you know, mm-hmm. they, they're there. Uh, but well, what we see is, and a lot of our studies, just to preface this, we kind of go with a six week or so dry period. So it's not even the full 60 days. Mm-hmm. We're seeing these impacts with just six to maybe seven weeks dry. Uh, the calf is very um, responsive to heat stress at that time. And it's going to reduce body growth. We know that. They calve in a couple of days, a couple few days earlier. So part of that is just less time in utero. But there are longer term impacts of that heat stress on those calves uh, beyond that early life kilo, two kilo drop in in body weight because that persists at least through a year of life that they are at a lower body weight. We've got evidence that they're probably stature challenged as well, right? They're not as tall as the calves that would come from a a cooled uh, dam. There's all kinds of immune function or immune status reductions in those animals, primarily because their ability to absorb immunoglobulin from colostrum is reduced when they've experienced heat stress in utero. So there are all these impacts physiologically that are programmed by that heat stress late in gestation. And part of it is an adaptive response, so that those animals will then you know, enter an environment where the, they've kind of already shifted their physiology to most appropriately deal with that environment. But that's not the case, right? With our animals now, we manage them with heat abatement and other things. So, but that's the, the, at least our thinking is that it's an adaptive response with those animals. Ends up being those animals are more able to deal with an acute heat stress event, but we pay for that every day and the fact that they are less productive. So that's one of their adaptations. We're a less productive animal. We probably are better able to deal with higher temperatures.
0: Yeah, the claustrum thing's interesting too, because like with the effect of that in utero, is it just because she's in the cow and, you know, maybe, you know, like this area, we're feeding a high fiber diet. So we're maybe creating more heat stress and then that calf is is growing there. Or is it simply because they don't get enough absorption of clostrum in general, and maybe some of those other nutrients that we don't maybe know about yet, like they're just not getting adequate levels of those.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that was our question as well. So we've looked at that a, a couple of different ways. The first one, when we looked at just straight immunoglobulin uptake in the calves from the heat stress versus the cool dams, they got the same in volume of colostrum. The colostrum IG content wasn't different, but mm-hmm. the calves that were heat stressed less uptake so the problem with that study or the limitation of that study is you know we pointed out was that they all got colostrum from their mom so it could have been something else as you point out in the colostrum that's influencing their capacity for absorption so we went and looked at that and uh it that study the next study pretty convincingly said that it's not the colostrum It's not something about the colostrum because we fed colostrum from heat stress cows to calves that were born to a cool dam didn't affect them at all. We fed colostrum from a cool dam to a calf that was born to a heat stress dam still had poor uptake.
0: This is a calf issue.
1: Yeah. And we've since gone on and looked at, uh, it, it looks like the impact is on their gut development that gut closure process is really about the turnover of the enterocytes, the cells in the gut. Mm -hmm. And so at first there's what we call not their leaky tight junctions between those cells, that first layer. And as that first layer turns over, that's when we start to get those tight junctions formed in that first day of life or so. And that's when we stop having the capacity to take up those large molecules like immunoglobulins. Well, that process, a turnover, seems to be accelerated in the calves that have been heat stressed in utero versus the ones that are cooled. So the gut closure process is already well underway before she even hits the ground. And we think that explains their lower ability to absorb immunoglobulin. So you you can't just give her more. Mm -hmm. You you can't try and correct it after the calf is born. You got to correct it beforehand by making sure she's in a cooler environment that mom is in a cooler environment
0: so like that's super interesting so is that like a defense mechanism then like for pathogen uptake like they just want to get that gut closed up or like
1: yeah that's fascinating yeah and and we don't really know uh, from an evolutionary perspective what that adaptive advantage might be whether it would be or not um you know it could also be that uh you know i put it as the gut Closure process is accelerated. It could also be that it takes a certain amount of maturation in utero to fully Mm.
0: sort
1: of have that process occur. And so maybe the fact that they're born a few days earlier means that they haven't gotten full maturity of the ability or the capacity to take up immunoglobulin. It it could be that it's more related to that rather than a a, an adaptive mechanism. Yeah,
0: like that's that's uh, super interesting. And then with the calf like if you're looking at the life cycle of a pre-lactation animal like we'll start at the calf and go go right through like Mm -hmm. once they've already lost that little bit of birth weight are they always behind the eight ball per se
1: yeah with average daily gain so we looked at it um at first just through weaning and they maintain a lower birth weight or body weight to weaning and then we looked at it in a larger group of animals. Once we started accumulating these calves over time, they seem to be at a lower body weight through a year of life around puberty. Uh, But then when we've looked at those animals, those same animals at calving, their body weight at calving wasn't different. So they've had some compensatory gain between year one and year two of life, but it's likely that the composition of that gain is not the same. Right. So those yeah, calves, it's, not,
0: it's not like structural gain. It's like,
1: it's, it's not lean. It's fat.
0: <laughs> exactly. It's less
1: yeah. productive yeah. tissue. And not that fat yeah. isn't all, you know, unproductive, you got to have some of it yeah. to, to optimize. Uh, But for sure, I think that, you know, we haven't done those slaughter studies yet. But that that w- those animals would be, I think, on a higher fat content, and probably shorter stature at that time, too, because they are up to a year of life or so shorter as well. yeah, so height's going to be reduced. Um, and that's probably explaining some of the lower productivity in those animals, but you know, there's also very clearly visible effects on mammary development in those animals. We did a recent slaughter study where we looked at um, we had calves that were born to heat stress dams or cool dams and sacrificed them at birth, sacrificed them at weaning. And you know, when we started dissecting out the mammary glands, you can see that there is less just to the naked eye, less potential mammary tissue at birth, at weaning and looking at proliferative effects and other, you know, at the more cellular level, it all tells the same story that that animal has been sort of set up for lower productivity. It's a lower productivity phenotype.
0: Do you see increases in morbidity as well?
1: We do. We see that the survival in those animals all the way through. And for this, we've looked at up to five years of age. And you just see that those animals always have, it's kind of a parallel line, but it's always below the line that we would see for survival in the herd of the animals that were born to a cooled dam. So just a little more sickness,
0: a little bit higher culling rate.
1: Yeah poorer reproduction yeah. she's at the lower end of productivity i mean all of those things lead to that uh, group of animals just not hanging around as long it's about a year less time in the herd for, that's that's
0: pretty significant
1: well when it's we a lactation really when we think about longevity for sure and we've yeah. actually now gone back and looked at some records from a few herds florida and California. Um, that have good records and have the numbers of animals that we need. And uh, when we look at animals that were in their fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth lactation, about two-thirds of those animals were born in the cooler season versus animals that were born in the warmer season. So That's by looking
0: at date of birth.
1: Yep. And yep. so it, it just sort of tells the story that, you know, our control studies are, are really telling us what the biology is, but then you see it in records at the farm level
0: it's kind of like that trifecta you've got it confirmed almost because you're putting the whole pieces all the pieces of the puzzle together so so to kind of build off that like what can practically what can producers do at their farms to help mitigate the heat stress because obviously there's there's the biological impacts, but there's also a financial impact to it. And if you're saying, you know, you get one less lactation out of an animal or a year of life, like that's a, that's pretty significant.
1: Yeah. We've done the the financial estimates both on the cow. So what she's going to do in that next lactation, just looking at productivity. And then when we got more information, we're more comfortable with our assumptions. We looked at the effects on the calf as well. And it ends up being pretty similar to the estimates that, there are for lactating cows heat stress about a billion and a half dollars a year to the US dairy industry is what we'd see with dry cow heat stress versus lactation heat stress um so it it's significant um in terms of what people can do i mean my, my first sort of piece of advice is make sure they get their dry cows cooled okay you mm-hmm. got to figure out how whatever your heat abatement system is get them cooled off and the other thing that I try and emphasize to people is not not to downplay heat stress, not to think, oh, well, it only gets hot here for a couple of weeks a year. It's not too bad. And we can get beyond that. Number one, cows get heat stress before we do, right? Mm-hmm. They've got a big heat generator inside of them called the rumen that's just pushing out heat. And so they get heat stress before we will. And so using our own level of comfort isn't appropriate for what those cows need. Beside the fact that we typically go from the air-conditioned house to the air-conditioned truck to the air-conditioned office at the farm. And so sure, heat stress isn't too bad because we're not out in that barn. Um, so I, I think really understanding when cows get heat stressed is, is important. Um, and when we've done estimates of how much of the year different areas will be heat stressed, at least for the top dairy states in the U.S., um comes out to about 3 months a year is what we can expect for for heat stress so you might say well three quarters of the year shouldn't have any problem if you assume that you have the same number of cows calving every month that means at least a, a quarter of your herd is potentially heat stressed when they're yeah. dry if you don't have heat abatement for them
0: yeah well and i know but under it, our canadian system is that We're pretty heavy calvers through June, July, August.
1: And typically what we see is most places it's going to, that's going to be a little delayed. It's actually a little later that you're going to start to see heavier calving, August, September, October. And so there's even more of the herd that is potentially heat stressed than that 25% estimate would be. Uh, So, yeah, it's, it's more of a, of a negative effect and more of a potential economic effect than than people realize. In the environment, as we talked about, where you have high humidity and high heat, you really need to get water on those cows and get it moved away. Soak them down to the skin, get fans on them so that we can move that water off of them and take heat with it. Using fans, I think sometimes makes us feel more comfortable or we feel better about it, but I'm not sure how effectively that really cools animals. And when, you know, studies have been done looking at fans alone, soakers alone, or the combination, and the the combination by far is much better at heat abatement than either fans or, or soakers alone. You just, sometimes you're just moving hot air over those animals and it really doesn't do much to, for heat abatement.
0: Well, I know I always get the pushback from producers that water puts too much manure in the pit or too much water in there in the manure pit. Mm-hmm. And then I've been under the impression that they're either going to drink it or you're going to dump it on them. One or the other, that water is going to end up in the manure pit. So
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. We we did a study last summer with some of these newer um soakers that only come on when the cow is there versus the the sort of typical system that we have that they come on every five minutes or every 10 minutes, regardless of whether there's a cow under them or not. And it's interesting to your point that our traditional system used more water when we looked at the total amount of water going through the soakers and the total amount that the cows were consuming, right? So we put it put it all together and did a, a total volume for those cows uh, on that treatment. The newer soakers that use a lot less water because you don't spray every five minutes, whether there's a cow there or not, um, there really wasn't a difference when we looked at total water between <laughs> them and the heat stress cows yeah. but the cooling was much more effective when it was going on their backs versus the cows that were under heat stress that didn't have any soakers and were just increasing their water intake so you're exactly right that you know putting it on their back seems to have a much greater effect at least from this one sort of small study uh, than allowing them to just drink more water. And you're not going to change. We didn't change the total amount of water that either of those groups were putting into the manure system. So you can, you can have very different outcomes to the same amount of water, depending on how it's applied.
0: It's just where you want to allocate it, I guess. And then like, so like in, in your hierarchy, dry cows are the number one place to cool. Where would number two be?
1: Uh yeah. I mean, I used to get that question in the first couple of years, people would say, uh, you can only cool one, dro- one group of cows on the farm. Who do you cool? And I'd say dry cows, and they'd look at me like I was crazy. Uh so, you know, from from my perspective, right? We want to get the the dry cows cooled and then I'd look at our holding pen if we, you know, if we're putting animals through a milking parlor, make sure those cows are, are cooled. Um, I would probably then look at my early to mid lactation cows. And so that's sort of uh, waffling a little bit, but we don't have enough information. We've got some information that says that those mid lactation cows actually don't persist as well if they've been heat stressed at any time. So that would be the next group that I'm looking at sort of peak to to post peak animals um, is is where I'm going to be looking. Um, But bottom line is we want to get all our cows cooled. Right. If we're milking cows, we want to make sure that we've got effective heat abatement in place and that heat abatement needs to be um, effective when we've got heat stress. And I think that, you know, even in Ontario, as you say, across the upper Midwest, the Northeast, it doesn't last as long as our heat stress here, but you've got significant heat stress.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm sorry, but when it gets to 98 degrees for two weeks straight we're going to have significant heat stress. And it does that in that sort of range with pretty fair regularity. And it seems to be getting more and more regular uh, that it occurs. So we need to be thinking about it, um, even if we don't necessarily need it in October and November like we needed here in Florida.
0: No. And I mean, our heat stress here, I would say probably it seems like it's starting more in it's it's likely starting in April in short bouts but by the time we get into mid to late May early June like we're getting some significant bouts of heat stress where we're talking about you know 90 degrees or 32 C yep. weather with you know anywhere from 70 to 90 percent humidity now it's yep. a little bit different this year like we had a really really warm week where it was 30 plus degrees or 90 plus Fahrenheit for five or six days in a row. And, and at night, like it, it really wasn't, it was dropping a bit, but not much Yep. and low humidity, but still like you could just, you see, it, I see it in the bulk tanks. Like when I start looking at people's milk pickups on a, on a Monday morning or whatever, like looking back at the week before, mm-hmm. like you see it, you see it in component production, you see it in milk production. And I did some quick math because I knew you threw that number of a billion, there's a 1.1 billion or something like that, that cost a half. Meat. One and a half, half yeah. So I did a little bit of math on 9 million cows in the U.S. That's about a hundred and not quite 170 dollars a day, U.S. per or 170 dollar cost per cow in the U.S. for yep. lactation. Like that's a yeah. I know what I could do with uh I could buy some yeah. fishing, some nice fishing equipment with some 180 and, bucks, but
1: and a, and a good year profitability on a cow will be 450 to 500 dollars. So you're looking you know,
0: at a third of her profitability right there, potentially. Um. What about uh, fans? Like I know I've done this in the past, and I, I and I'm always on people to kind of lower their turn off point on fans. So a lot of people have their fans say turn off at 18 C. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Maybe 65 or 68 degrees. And mm-hmm. I've had people move that point down because, like the cycle through the day, like the cow's not going to peak in her body temp until what 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night.
1: Yeah, I mean, they they accumulate heat during the day, it seems, and then get rid of it at, at night. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that we we want to look not just right at the heat, but kind of what our humidity level is uh, as well. Um, but you can probably get away with your fan setting from a temperature perspective a little lower if we've got water going on to those cows as well. Okay. As I said before, just having the fans... Mm, somewhat effective it's certainly from a ventilation perspective important um but i'm not sure that we get a whole lot of cooling regardless of where our temperature is uh on those animals
0: yeah you have to get the you have to get the water on them and and i think we should maybe kind of look at it differently too in you know the upper midwest or the southeast like we've got to do evaporative cooling not correct uh uh oh i can't think of the word right now we're
1: not we're not cooling the air yes
0: we're, cool we're cooling the cow, the cow. Yeah, like, so fine mist doesn't to, get, help.
1: Exactly. In order to get that cow cool, she has to get wet on her skin. And what yeah. I what I make the analogy, whether it's, I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but I think it helps people sometimes, you know, you go to the beach, you lay out, you get hot, you go in, you get wet, you come out, you're cool. As that breeze sort of blows that water off of you, you feel yourself cooling off. And so that's the same type of thing that we want. In a more arid environment where we can actually look at um, you know, getting a mist of water and that's going to take some of that heat out of the air and cool the air, then we could use those. But that's why I use the term soakers. I don't use misters. I don't use sprinklers. I mean, we want them soaked. That I do that on purpose because that's what we need to get the cows wet down on their, on their backs.
0: And uh, I'm not sure what your situation is in Florida with uh, robotic milking. Yeah, I don't know. Is there a lot of robots in Florida? Or not not really?
1: really, not really any at all. Uh, at this point, part of that is a, uh, my understanding when I tried to get some robots, um, we're too far from where there are other robots at this point. So <laughs> no dealer <they're>, network <laughs> from a, te- from a technical perspective, they didn't have the help to repair them. So they didn't yep. want to get into a new territory. So you can see yep. that they're kind of moving out from the upper midwest canada
0: yeah and then uh so it's kind of interesting so i've had some producers hook up shower nozzles in them so when the front mm-hmm. gate opens they just get a complete blast of water down on their back for however many seconds or till the cow leaves and then mm-hmm. and then the front gate closes and the, and the tap shuts off and we're seeing increased visits in the summer <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like point 0.1, well, point 0.2, like point 0.3 in some instances. But
1: the uh, I've done some work down in Mexico and again, more arid environment down there, but open lots. And so, yep. what they would do with their dry cows is bring them up to the showers, they would walk them up there a couple few times a day, get them soaking wet, they'd go back, lay down. That water's going to move off of them, take heat with them, and they saw good responses in those animals. That was in a dry cow study. Uh, but they see good responses in those animals. So it's the same thing. If they're going to be hot, let's get them cooled off where we can, when we can.
0: Is there any heat abatement considerations like from like mechanical ventilation or cooling like with calves or are they relatively resilient?
1: No, it'll, it'll decrease intake. It'll decrease growth rate. I think a lot of it can be overcome with, with shade and making sure we yeah. have appropriate shade Uh calf hutches can become little ovens, um, yep. despite the fact that they're, you know, they're light colored, uh, particularly if we don't have good air movement around those hutches. Um, so I think we can, uh, you know, we don't have to be as extreme on our heat abatement, but certainly getting shade to those animals, making sure that, you know, if, if we do have real hot conditions, that we think about what we might want to do, particularly I think as the animals get a little older and get a little larger and a little less able to, to get rid of heat, what we're going to do for heat abatement. Certainly springing heifers, we did a study with those animals. And when we cooled them before they you know, two months before they had their first calf, they end up making more milk in the first lactation. So <laughs> it, it's a, it's a biologically you know, sort of consistent response, whether it's her first lactation or her fifth lactation does the same thing.
0: There's an impact to it. Yep. Was there any uh, final thoughts that you had or any, I don't know, tidbits or anecdotes for producers out there when when thinking about heat stress?
1: Yeah, no, I I think we covered most of the, the work that, that we've done and most of the recommendations that I would have. But I would emphasize to people to really think about not assuming that because you're not as hot or don't feel as hot, that the cow doesn't feel as hot because they do get heat stressed before we do. And we need to consider that when we're thinking about our heat stress abatement and how, how important it is to, to prioritize that as a management decision.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point to end off with. So Jeffrey, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know, uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, I've used your uh, studies a lot over the Past few years, or almost my entire career, so I uh, I truly do appreciate you coming on and spending some time and talking to the listeners about uh, about heat stress, something pretty uh, pretty important to us this time of year. All
1: right, thank you, Keith.
0: Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmers Digest is brought to you by the Dairy Team at Waldstein Feed and Supply Limited. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player, and please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Squinderwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.